Tonight's teaching will cover the final chapter of the second epistle and a brief wrap-up to concisely summarize our time of study together. Then Nicole and I will transition to answering the questions we had turned in before diving into more delicious desserts and heading to dis discussion groups for the last time. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, once more, I just want to thank you um, for who you are, for Christ Jesus, and for just this opportunity to gather with these women. I um, thank you for just this just this night and what it symbolizes in, in the six weeks of the study that we um, have participated in. I pray that you would just continue um, after tonight to just uh, change us by your word through your spirit into the image of your son. Lord, let tonight um, be a night that's glorifying and honoring to you in um, all the ways, in this teaching, in our question and answer time, and in our discussion times together. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In both epistles to the Thessalonians, we saw Paul address future events regarding the return of Christ and then circle back to present-day applications for the period of waiting. Last week, we saw Paul instruct the Thessalonians on the gaps and wrong thinking in their eschatology once more. And this week, we'll see Paul close out the second epistle with a focus on their everyday living in their present again. In weeks three and four of our study, we saw the topic of work and those who were walking in idleness introduced. The majority of the last chapter written to the Thessalonians addresses this group of people who had remained disorderly in their work after many opportunities to change course. Whatever the situation was, those who were idle or disorderly had not taken Paul's more gentle warnings and commands from the first letter to heart. Let's read the first five verses. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So in similar fashion to the closing of 1 Thessalonians, Paul asked for the brothers and sisters at the Thessalonica to pray for him and his team once more. In the first two chapters of this epistle alone, Paul had prayed for the Thessalonians three times already. Like in the first letter, he was a model of praying without ceasing and desired the Thessalonians to join his team's efforts through interceding for them. What did Paul ask them to pray for? Paul asked them to pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead, that the word of the Lord would be honored like among the Thessalonians, and that his team would be delivered from wicked and evil men. First, the picture is the word of the Lord being a runner, speeding ahead in a race. In his letters, Paul often used Greek Olympic game imagery. But this imagery also calls back to Psalm 147.15, which says, The Lord sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. The God who sends out his word to run is the one capable of answering the interceding prayers of the Thessalonians and providing undeterred progress to Paul and his team. 
Second, Paul asks that they'd pray for the word of the Lord to be honored like it was among the Thessalonian Christians. Other translations say glorified, which should call us back to chapter 1, verse 12, talking about the name of the Lord Jesus being glorified at his return. If you remember, Nicole said that, that a person's name encompassed their character and whether they were to be honored. On earth, Jesus was dishonored. That's because the culture of the day was an honor and shame culture. If the culture deemed you honorable, you were honored. If the culture deemed you shameful, you were shamed. To the culture, Christ Jesus was a shameful figure. His name and his word were considered to be full of shame. Why? In part because of his crucifixion. In Roman society, the cross was the most grotesque and shame-filled way to kill someone. In Jewish society, according to the law, anyone hung on a tree was considered to be cursed by God. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that when he preached Christ crucified, it was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And also why, in his opening to the Romans, he told them he was not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. The word of the Lord, the gospel of Christ crucified, was not honored in any outside culture. It was seen as shameful, as silly. But as it sped ahead and ran swiftly and sounded forth to outsiders, some, like the Thessalonians, believed it was the power of God for salvation and honored it in their own hearts. This is what they are to continue to pray for, for those who will hear the word of the Lord for the first time and honor it in their hearts until Christ returns and is marveled at, honored, and glorified fully. Lastly, Paul asked them to pray for their deliverance from wicked and evil men. These wicked and evil men are those trying to impede the running of the gospel message. Like the certain groups of Jews from the first epistle who hated the Gentiles so much, they didn't want the gospel moving forward to them. Like the mob and city authorities in Thessalonica who forced Paul and his team to leave. And like the many, many other persecutors Paul endured throughout his life. Paul, in asking for the prayers of the Thessalonians, knew that God could deliver him and his team one way or another so that the word of the Lord could continue to swiftly run. And the very next phrase says, for not all have faith. This could be the reason for the prayers. Not all have faith. So Paul desired for the word of the Lord to speed ahead, to be honored in hearts, and to have deliverance from the wicked who tried to impede that progress. It could also be referring to the wicked and evil men's lack of faith, which fueled their actions to persecute those who had faith and kept others from hearing the gospel message. Either way, what the Thessalonians and Paul's team could have hope in is found in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. Because he is faithful, he will establish and guard them against the evil one, the one who drives all evil. This does not undermine anything Paul has already instructed them in regard to persecution and suffering at the hands of their countrymen in, in either letter. Their ongoing and worsening persecution does not mean God is failing at establishing and guarding them. 
This doesn't mean evil is gaining the upper hand in the present. Instead, it goes right along with what he'd already instructed them back in chapter 2 that we saw last week, when evil will be at its peak, taking on human form in the man of lawlessness, and the Lord Jesus will kill him with his breath. The Thessalonians and Paul and his team, anyone enduring persecution can rest in God's faithfulness. They are not at the mercy of the evil one. Even evil is guarded by God's sovereignty right now. Those experiencing persecution deriving from the evil one may suffer for a time, but they will not be overcome forever. They are established and guarded by the one who has been, is, and will always be faithful. In verses 4 and 5, Paul commended the Thessalonians' past obedience to what he had instructed in the first letter and wished for their, their continued obedience in what he is going to instruct them on in this second letter. He prayed that their hearts would be directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. In the midst of their ongoing persecution and struggles, Paul wanted their hearts, the center of their lives, to be pointed to God's love for them in the perseverance and hope of Christ. And sitting in the good news that God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for those who were sinners, the Thessalonians could then continue showing their abounding love to one another and to outsiders. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to remember their afflictions were evidence that they identified with Christ who also suffered and were worthy of being part of his kingdom. In the next section, Paul circles back to the instructions he gave in the first letter regarding work because not all had heeded his commands. Let's read verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother or sister who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In the first epistle, Paul had recounted the tent-making work his team had labored in to not be a financial burden to this brand new congregation. They worked night and day while planting the church. Paul recounted again what he's already told them in the first letter, saying this was an example for them to imitate. Just a side note, there's so much repetition in these last few chapters. It just just really struck me. Humans need a lot of repetition to learn something, anything. Some brothers and sisters had not changed their ways between the first and second letters. Paul instructed the larger community to keep away from the brothers and sisters walking in idleness. And if you'll, if you'll remember with me, there were thought to be a couple of options of who exactly the idle and disorderly were and what they were doing. 
One option is that some of these people may have believed the return of Christ was so soon or had already happened in a spiritual sense that they didn't think they needed to work any longer, that there was no point in engaging in physical labor if the Lord's return was already upon them. Another possibility would have been people working as clients of wealthy patrons for political expediency. These people could have been instructed in the first letter to break from their patrons and engage in the work of their work on their own to make it their own living. For reasons unknown, maybe not wanting to give up their last foot in the outside culture as a client, or not wanting to engage in work that they considered beneath them, a small group hadn't listened. In verse 10, Paul had given them a command when he was with them. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Commentators thought this command to be a proverbial saying stemming from Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Those who were idle, who were disorderly, not following the traditions given to them by example and word, were classified as busybodies. Instead of being busy working with their own hands, they were meddling in others' business. This group of people had refused to work for themselves, and in all their downtime, they made sure they were right in the middle of everything else. At the end of this thought, Paul commanded this group again to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Before we move on to see the instructions to the remainder of the community, I think it's important to dive into the theme of work and how it shakes out in our context a bit. You had an application question in your homework this week focusing on the spectrum we find ourselves in regarding work. I have learned we're often tempted to make our work an idol or to become idle in our work. For a small group of Thessalonians, the latter was the problem. In this room, I'm sure all of us fall across the spectrum at different times and in different seasons. Maybe you're a student that makes your schoolwork and grades an idol instead of seeing your schoolwork as a means to use the gifts and talents God has given you to glorify him as you study and in the relationships you make along the way. Maybe you don't think studying or working hard in school matters at all as you're more concerned with all the freedom that college brings. Maybe you're in a profession that you've dreamed of doing your entire life and make that your complete identity, sacrificing all sorts of relationships and ministry opportunities to maintain it. Maybe you're in a job that you don't particularly care for, and you lean to being the busybody at your workplace, not working hard, but meddling in the lives of others. Maybe you're a mom like me, who mostly stays home. Maybe the idle side of your spectrum is trying to prove your work is worthy in the ways that money and social status usually does. Maybe it's just being idle with the work you have been given because the never-ending laundry, dishes, and raising children doesn't seem that important to press into all the time. Wherever you find yourself on the spectrum between work becoming an idol or being idle in work, I think it's important for us to remember work was given to humanity prior to the fall in Genesis 3 before the curse of thorns and thistles, pain and sweat. Work was part of the mandate given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. After the fall, we have to fight between both sides of the spectrum. But work was intended to be a good thing, a worthy endeavor in every stage and season. 
I've heard it said that work is imaging our God and bringing order out of chaos. As a woman that sees herself all over the spectrum in any given day, that is something I have to preach to myself. Work is good. Work is worthy. Work is a gift God has given me to bring glory to him. Work images the God who made me, the one who brings order from chaos. When I was writing this lesson, I woke up one morning humming a hymn that I grew up singing and probably hadn't heard in in two decades that I think would have been perfect for the Thessalonian believers and for us today. The chorus says, we'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes and we'll be gathered home. Paul then shifted from speaking to the disorderly to those in the rest of the congregation in verses 13 to 15. He first tells them to not grow weary in doing good. As it's sandwiched right in the middle of this conversation on work and dealing with those who are disorderly, we can interpret this statement in a couple ways. One, we can see it as an encouragement for the majority of the faith community to continue in their work like they have been, not to allow the sin of others to tempt them to stop doing their good work. Two, we could see it as an encouragement to use discernment in situations. These commands do not mean that Thessalonians were not meant to help those in genuine need, but to recognize the difference between those who really need help and those who were outright rejecting work. They were to continue to do good whenever they could and not be wearied by those who were idle. Paul then comes back to clarify what he meant by keeping away from those who do not obey in verse 6. They were already told to keep away from them. Now they are told to take note together and have nothing to do with them. This may seem like a little harsh and hasty church discipline practice if we forget how often this topic has already been addressed. We're going to see that it is actually meant to draw these people to repentance. One reason of having to separate from those who were idle was because the culture at large would have seen those who could work and didn't as shameful and unethical. If the church didn't take a stand against them, it looked like they approved of this way of living bringing more unnecessary name or shame to the name of Christ who they claim to follow. Due to that shame-honor system, another reason was because those who trusted in Christ and proclaimed him Lord would have already been shamed by the unbelievers in society. They were already considered the social outcasts. If the church then had to pull back from these certain members, they would be completely alone. This was to be a collective effort to awaken those in sin to their wrong actions and to turn from their idleness and be brought back into the community. In verse 15, the majority is told to not regard these people as enemies, but as brothers and sisters. This was meant to be a restorative process, a final attempt at walking at waking those in sin to recognition after being showed by Paul and his team, taught in person, instructed in the first letter, and commanded in this second letter. If this group still continued in idleness after being commanded to work quietly and to earn their own living once again back in verse 12, these were the actions the rest of the spiritual family were to take, hoping for conviction, repentance, and reconciliation to avoid excommunication. 
One commentator did point out, based on uh, if their response was continued disobedience, excommunication would likely have been the next step. After these final instructions, Paul closes this second letter. Verse 16 to the end. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul returned in his closing to the first letter's closing theme of peace. He asked that the Lord of peace himself would give peace to the Thessalonians at all times and in every way. From this second epistle, we know that it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. The realization of who they are in Christ changed everything for their present. The Lord's peace helped them hold on to his faithfulness amidst their suffering, their questions regarding his return, in their work, and in their dealing with those who were disobedient. And then Paul, in the original letter, would have taken up pen after presumably dictating to Silas or Timothy to authenticate that this letter was from him. This practice is more than likely from possible forged letters circulating that he cited back in chapter 2, verse 2. He closes with the grace of the Lord Jesus to be with them all, the ones striving towards obedience and the ones called back to obedience. All. And with that, we have completed these two often overlooked epistles to the Thessalonians. Let's take just a few minutes to look back on just a few of our main takeaways from our six weeks of study. In the very first week, we saw that the historical and cultural context of the Thessalonians brought a lot of weight to the rest of the content of the books. Trying to see the believers within their own context only brought greater clarity and meaning to why Paul was addressing certain topics that then led to deeper application for us throughout the study. While the terms faith, love, and hope adorn coffee mugs and t-shirts in our day, these words were anything but empty to the Thessalonians. We hope this study has brought back some of the weightiness and depth of these words as you continue to think about these themes your own faith in the ups and downs of everyday life, the love you are shown by God and called to show to others, and the hope of Christ's return. In week two, we saw the seriousness of declaring Jesus Christ as Lord in the Roman Empire. It was considered a direct attack on the self-proclaimed deity of Caesar, putting the believers at odds with their culture, which resulted in serious persecution from the unbelieving. We don't face the same harsh persecution but proclaiming Jesus Christ as our Lord is just as serious and should result in us not looking like the culture that surrounds us. In week three, we saw Paul show his love for the believers by trying to get back to them. He was unable, so he had sent Timothy. He also instructed them to love one another while completely flipping the Greco-Roman culture's view on sex and work in the lives of believers. From that week, we clearly saw the call to love others sacrificially, to gain spiritually in our own lives, to see one another as brothers and sisters first and foremost, and to be generous the same way Paul exemplified and expected of the Thessalonian believers. 
In week four, we saw Paul instruct the Thessalonian believers in detail on the return of Christ to give them hope and grief, to show them they were prepared for the day to take away any fears, and to show what believers were to be marked by in the meantime. We too needed to see the connection between what we believe about Christ's return in the future having an effect on our present. We need to bring this hope-filled conversation back into our daily lives to encourage one another as we wait. In week five, we saw Paul have to address misconceptions around the day of the Lord again. Persecution had worsened, false teachings were starting to trickle in, and the Thessalonians had to choose what to believe to reorient their lives. For us, we saw that there are two storylines we choose to live in, one that places all our hope in this life that makes us grasp too tightly and fills life with stress, and the other that frees us to see that this life is only temporary, that our hope is in the life to come. And tonight, we saw Paul instruct the Thessalonians in their work and in reconciliation of those who were disobedient. And I hope we saw the worthiness of our own work and the call to see our work rightly as we wait until Jesus comes. We have prayed and will continue to pray that this portion of the word of God we have studied will only continue to conform us into the image of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. We hope that we will all continue to meditate on and encourage one another with the things we have learned. We desire for you to see that if you know Jesus Christ as Lord, then you are reconciled to God. The God of peace is now with you in whatever situation you find yourselves in, whether suffering or rejoicing. And that this world with effects of the fall and redemption intertwined would point us to the hope that is certain and sure, that Christ will come again to redeem, resurrect, and renew all things. A verse from one of my favorite hymns and probably uh, one of most of yours can close out this study on the books of First and Second Thessalonians for us. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great was the Lord's faithfulness to the Thessalonians, and great is his faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this study. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, I pray that um, this study would just not end tonight, that you would just continue to work in the lives of these women and that you would just continue to show us um, the excitement and the eagerness that we are to have in hoping for uh, Christ's return. Lord, I pray that the rest of tonight would be um, glorifying to you and edifying to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.